Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. You're growing increasingly aware of that. It's as if I don't quite have to say it as much anymore. But anyway, here we are. Hey, it's a great day to be alive, and I mean that more than ever today because I've got some uh, sad news to share with you all. My father, whom many of you have gotten to know through the interview I did with him last year, my father, William Ollinger, while napping in his recliner on a Friday afternoon, surrounded by loved ones, my dad passed away. It's a sad time, but really the prevailing emotion that I have right now is gratitude, deep abiding gratitude for all the time I got to spend with my dad. I'm 51 years old. I got five decades plus with my dad, almost all of them healthy. I am the son of a kind, brilliant, and humble man who walked a beautiful walk and his time was up. And I can't find it in myself right now to feel anything but grateful. Because I just know that I got so much time, not just length of time, but quality time. My dad could have gone as any of us could go at any time. My dad had a brain injury when I was nine. He had a blunt force trauma to his head on the touch football field during Thanksgiving flag football or touch football with my brother and his friends. And he almost died when I was nine. Now think about that. How different would my life have been if I had lost my dad four decades ago? How much would I have missed of his loving example in my life of just the security of having somebody there who's looking out for you for all those years, not just in your youth and your teens, but in your young adult life where you feel like a grown up, but you're, you're really just figuring it out. How much would I have missed? And I just think back on those extra decades as bonus time. I remember the night before I went to college, my dad was he was breaking down. So we never really had the talk talk about sex and stuff. My mom did that while I was learning algebra at the kitchen table one very awkward Thursday afternoon in probably 1983. But my dad, the night before I went to college, like we're packing up the station wagon with all my dorm goodies. And, you know, my dad calls me into his room and sits me down and he starts cataloging the litany of things that will be there to distract me while I'm at college booze, drugs, women, women. Yes. And he's like, you just gotta, you gotta keep your head about you, son. Any one of those things could steer you off course if you're not careful. And he wasn't wrong, by the way. So he said something that was hilarious to me at the end of it, which perfectly encapsulates his attitude towards life. He said, the net of all this is to say that you have four years, do with them what you will. I suggest you graduate. That's what he said to me the night before college. There was wisdom enough for me. I was like, yeah, I think I'll graduate in four years. I like that. So I'm grateful that I got all these times and there's dozens and hundreds more, obviously. But, you know, dad also survived two heart attacks, prostate cancer and raising six children, none of them easy. In 2011, his cardiologist told my brother to gather all the siblings. There's six of us, you may recall, six siblings in my family. Gather the siblings, come say goodbye to your dad. They were living in Fairhope, Alabama at the time. So off we went to Fairhope, Alabama, St. Thomas Medical Center or Thomas Medical Center. Don't remember exactly. But anyway, we gather around, say goodbye, tell him we love him. And what does dad do? He lives for another decade. That's what he does. 
probably because he wanted to take care of my mom during her final years. And he, he got to see the birth of two more grandchildren that I know my brother and I are very grateful. He got to meet them and he got to spend more time with the grandchildren that he already had, including the young ones. A couple years later, dad's cardiologist recommended him for a medical trial, a mitral clip valve that was going to stanch the blood flow that he was leaking out of his heart. And dad didn't do it because there was a 15% chance he would die on the table. And my mom was still very ill. So after my mom died, maybe 18 months after my mom died, dad was like, okay, I've done my duties. Like, let's sign up for that clip valve trial, which we did at 88. He's like, let's go for it. And to me, this just shows you how much he was clinging on to life. And indeed, the clip worked and dad's energy responded very quickly, at which point he started to complain about not being able to be more active. He was getting hip pain and he was like, I hate using this walker. I want to get a hip replacement. We'd be on a, at a doctor's appointment with him and the doctor would look at dad and then look at my brother or me and then look back at my dad and then look at us and say, is he serious? He wants a hip replacement at almost 90? And how can you not be anything but grateful for somebody who doesn't just want to stay alive, but to be alive right up until the very end, you know, for a guy that when I would say in the last six months, when his health was seriously deteriorating, how are you doing dad? And he'd say, I can't complain. And that was the absolute doggone literal truth. Like my dad couldn't complain. It just wasn't part of him. How can you not be anything but grateful for going out the way he did with a clear conscience, with no dementia, while chilling in your recliner. Sign me up for that right now. I just, I don't know. I just feel like he lived his full life. And, you know, I'm super conscious through the work of this podcast and specifically through the interview that I did last year, which we're sharing with you again right now. I'm super conscious of how incredibly lucky I was to be born to be in Bill Ollinger. And I do say lucky because we don't choose our parents because we spend so much time with them, because we see their strengths and weaknesses over the years. And because we become so much like them, we forget that we are not them. We did not choose them, but that we do choose how to parent. And, you know, in a world of increasing inequality, there's all this discussion of privilege out there right now, of the privilege that the rich have or the privilege that white people and males have. And while those can be sources of privilege and advantage in the world, absolutely, I believe the single most important privilege that there is gets almost zero airtime right now. And that's the privilege of having great parents. It's not something that we choose, just like we don't choose our skin color, our gender, or our sexual orientation. We don't get to choose our parents. Our parents choose to be great parents for us. And any of us can choose to be the best parents we can be. I didn't grow up fancy. I was incredibly privileged. Two great parents who loved me, who educated me, who stayed together for 55 years because that's what you do. Two parents who put their kids first and themselves second and not in an indulgent way. I had two parents who were never afraid to say no to me and all my siblings, but mostly to me. I'm just kidding. That was, that was a self-indulgent uh, comment right there. Two parents that demonstrated their values through not just their actions and their aspirations, but as it relates to this podcast, where they put their money, they put their money where their mouth was on their faith, on the education of their children and on saving for the future. That's who they were. 
They didn't buy a bunch of fancy stuff, but they made sure their kids had every single thing that they needed, including an example of self-control when it came to buying a bunch of crap. Now, of course, the deprivation of Atari 2600 and HBO as a child has left me to be an uberly ambitious person, but I couldn't have even, I couldn't have even achieved a fraction of what I achieved if I didn't have these folks as parents. And so I'm so pleased that I took the opportunity to record this interview with my dad last year, not because it's an interesting conversation, which it is, and not just because my kids will be able to hear the actual voice that now occupies my head and makes me do things like reuse tinfoil and rewash Ziploc bags or clean out the peanut butter jar with the spatula before I throw it away. Because if there's still peanut butter in there, it's not done. You're throwing away money. But mostly because his life and his attitudes are the embodiment of a lot of the research that we talk about on this show. You want to talk about the Harvard Longitudinist study and how social relationships and doing something of meaning and seeing your place in the world, those are the factors that lead to happiness? That's dad. You want to talk about Sir Angus Deaton and Daniel Kahneman's study about additional happiness not really blooming past $75,000 a year? That's not research dad needed to see to decide how he was going to live his life. You want to talk about the wisdom of the ancients, the Stoics and the Buddhists, and about how people with fewer wants are much better off and happier? That's dad. He wanted little. We used to ask him, dad, what do you want for Christmas? And he'd say, come over here and haul half this shit away. That's what he wanted. He wanted to live a simple life. And I think that's exactly why he enjoyed all his 93 years right down to the last day where he sat down for a nap in his recliner. He was a comfortable man, comfortable in his own skin, comfortable with the people around him because he loved them and they loved him right back. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you agree that today's a great day. I hope you'll take this as a reminder that life is short, that you should treat today as if it's as special as any other day of the year, and that uh, you do something nice and loving for the people that you love in your life. And now, please enjoy this encore presentation of my interview with my dad, William Ollinger. I want to introduce you, William H. Ollinger, age 91 years young, former nuclear engineer for the Southern Company, father of six children, one of whom is me. I consider my dad to be a financial wizard, a knight in the army of frugality, the ranks of which have been thinned to an alarming rate in our country. Dad, do you accept your knightship? I accept it. I'm honored. (laughs) Dad, I'm very interested in having this conversation with you because at 91 years old, as a member of the Depression era, the World War II generation, you have a perspective on money and home economics, for lack of a better word, that I think is a rare one indeed. And I want to understand more about how you got to it and how you sustained it through raising six kids and sending them to school and all the temptations that you might have had to break your loyalty oath to the honor of frugality, but somehow you stuck with it. So start with me by telling me about the house you grew up in. What did your dad do for a living? My grandfather was uh, running to his friend, Marshall Turner. And he says, "Um, I'm starting a new business, Harry, my grandfather. And would you like to invest in it? What year was this? This would have been in November 1905. He says, well, I have a son going to finish uh, high school in uh, 
June. Perhaps you can give him a job. Ah, it's the old nepotism thing working already. Absolutely. <laughs> Where was this? Mobile, Alabama. Mobile, Alabama. And at the time, what, what do you think the population of Mobile was? Oh, it's probably 20,000. 20,000. Okay, and it's uh, on the water. It's a port. It's a port okay, of, on Mobile the, Bay. On Mobile Bay. It's the only port of, uh, in the state of Alabama. So this supply company that Mr. Turner was starting, what did they do? Well, it was uh, mill supplies. You have paper mills and cotton mills in Mobile. And uh, pepper mills, industrial supplies, you might say, a more general thing. Mostly stuff that they would use as cotton mills or paper mills, as I understand it. So your dad started there right out of high school. He went to work right out of high school, right? And the and the business was about six months old at that time. So when did he get married to your mother? Well, let's see. He finished high school in uh, uh, 1906, and he married her in 1920. Oh, okay. Wow, he just 14, 14 years later. Yeah, so he was thirty. He was 32. Oh, just the same age you were when you got married. That's right. I'm assuming he rose up the ranks at That's right. Turner Supply Company, That's where he right. worked since he was a young man, never went to college. He wanted to go to college. His father said, you're going to work. Go to work. <laughs> why do you think he said that? He had him a job. Well, why not? Why, get, why go get you one of them educations when you already got a job? What's the- you learn all the job. You, you learn. That's your education. You learn right all there. that fey Latin and silly, silly reading. Um, yeah. well, so your dad had a good job for 14 years before he got married. I think he enjoyed his... Uh, the 14 years as uh, being a young man about time. And, he was and, a player. And rather, the- and rather successful because uh, he had a steady job. I mean, he's beginning at 18. and uh, So he ran the table of all the ladies in the in, in the greater Mobile area in 1905. Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so he marries your mom, and they commence to bring many babies into the world. You had yeah. six siblings? Correct. By the time you come along, it's 1927. The recession is kicking off around the country. What was the economic mood like in Mobile and specifically in your home? I don't think we had any money problems, but my father made it not to tell, not to uh, disclose to the children his financial stuff because he realized that kids will talk, you know, he would keep you in the dark as to their your financial situation, or he he didn't want you talking to other kids about having stuff, or both? I would say both. I could tell we were better off than most people, but we didn't spend a lot of money. We were, we were kind of frugal. I think we could afford it. We could have lived a higher lifestyle. But that wasn't my, that wasn't my problem. What do you remember about, did your father talk to you about money? Did he, te- did he teach any lessons about money as a child? Or I would say as an example, he uh, was uh, frugal. Both my parents were kind of frugal, although they were from uh, not rich families, but my mother's family, our father had nothing and uh, started the business and did, uh, did very well. 
Then he, uh, then he died, at, uh, I think in his 50s. His 21-year-old son took over the business and failed right away because he didn't know anything, you know, and he was 21. I knew everything when I was 21. You should yeah. have asked me. Yes. You may recall. He got married to marriage and last, but there were three children and went to New York and never recovered. Uh, New York has that effect on a lot of people, <laughs> especially hayseeds from Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> so they had a conservative approach to money. and Yes. What do you remember about the Depression? Do you remember seeing people that were down on their luck? People would come to the door and say they're hungry. And we had a place where we kept stuff to feed people if they were hungry. I mean, it wasn't nothing but rolls or something like that. But I guess when you're hungry, you're glad to get that. Take a roll if I'm hungry. Things were a lot tougher, but not for us. Or we wouldn't, we really wasn't aware of it. So you came from a, there was always enough to eat. You always, you had a nice home. That's correct. And and all the kids went to went to school. We went to parochial schools, and okay. they they were not expensive, right? At, at that at that time, I didn't go to the parish school. I went to another private Catholic school, but I don't think the tuition was very much because every now and then I would be given the task to turn in the monthly bill, the monthly check, and I I don't think it was anything like a. I think it was about $5 or something like that. $5? This was a depression, so that was a lot more money. But uh, I couldn't see that we were were suffering. But we were still a frugal family. Was there anything that you didn't have that you wanted as as a child? Material things or opportunities or things that you wanted that your father warned you against being frivolous? I understood what the rules were, whether you would uh, <laughs> had sense enough not to ask for something you're not going to get. Right. I mean, when you know the answer is no, you don't answer the question. <laughs> when you were 12 years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? I was 12 years old. I really wasn't interested in growing up. <laughs> Pause, please. There's a phone. Did you go to college with a career in mind or... No. What did you think you wanted from college when you went to college? This would have been in 1934? Sorry, 1944. 1944. Yeah, I got out of high school, and uh, a week or two later, I was uh, going to summer school at Spring Hill College, and uh, I was accompanied by my sister Ruth and uh, Nell, and Buddy Smith came along, too. Buddy Smith, the world-famous future baker, purveyor yes. of bread stuffs for Mobile region. And also the future um, golf champion, Alabama State golf champion. I didn't and know his that. father was the Alabama State golf champion in 1931. And so about in 44, Buddy got that honor. I mean, he was good. <laughs> what did you study your first year of college? Did you have general requirements, or were you thinking well, about Well, I was nature? more interested in mathematics and, and physics, and that just fit together. Because that was just something you were good at and interested in? Yeah, I was good at it, yeah. So then you had, as I recall, your the war sort of was an inconvenience to your education, an interloper to the, the, the straight traditional four-year path at Spring Hill. That's right. 
I got out of high school. I just turned 17, so it was about a year before I had to face the draft. I followed the path zoology was on and joined the Merch Marine Cadet Corps. I was still 17 when I left Spring Hill to go to uh, training in the Merch Marine. So you then spent years in the military. You were in the Merchant Marine Corps. The Merchant Marine Cadet Corps. And, and then you joined the Navy afterwards? Well, the Merchant Marine Cadet Corps is really a f- four-year peacetime program. Mm-hmm. The plan was to go to school a year, then go to sea a year, then back to the academy for two years. Mm-hmm. Now, this was wartime. So the first year was uh, like 17 weeks, and then I went to... Um, War math. And then I went to sea. There's only two cadets on the ship I was on, I mean. And being a merchant marine during World War II was uh, not necessarily the safest assignment. Well, by the time I got there, the war stopped. You scared them into submission. That's right. The when Germans. I, I left for India and... The, before we got out of New York Harbor, the wall was open. <laughs> so they knew I was coming. And then they were changing from a wartime schedule of the Mike Spring Academy to a peacetime. And so um, I got to the academy for a year and a half after being about a year in sea duty, so to speak. Run me through the next few years. Then after that, I went to work for Waterman Steamship Company as a... Uh, third officer on a merchant ship. Uh, I did that for about a year, and then I went to the Merchant Marine Academy. Then I went back to Spring Hill and uh, got a bachelor's degree there. And lo and behold, uh, I was going to go to graduate school, uh, applied to go to St. Louis University. Why did you want to go to graduate school? I was studying physics, and I didn't think I knew enough from just a BS, <laughs> particularly at Spring Hill. Uh-oh. Wasn't particularly good in physics, I The think. provost of Spring Hill is not going to be happy with this smack talk oh. about their physics program. At that time. At the time. <laughs> they fixed it. They fixed it with the Bear Bryant chair in, in physics that they've endowed. So what did you think you wanted to do with a, with a master's of physics? Did you Were you thinking about getting your PhD or teaching? Yes, or? yes, definitely. I uh, was a PhD was uh, and what were kind, you, kind of in the tentative plans. What anyway. were you thinking you'd do with a PhD in physics? Well, at that time, uh, physics was a glamour science. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the nuclear stuff was being developed and whatnot. So I went into the nuclear program. Is this where I find out you've been a spy for all these years that I didn't know about? Or you worked on the Manhattan Project as a 17-year-old and... Where the body's buried, Dad. I need to know that. <laughs> yeah, the Manhattan Project started, uh, I guess, during the war, I guess, to make civilian use of uh, nuclear power. So I thought that that looked like a opportunity for for employment. So, so you you were studying physics partly because there was a lot going on in in the uh, the world nuclear of nuclear power, power at that time. Yeah. And so you were in the Ph.D. program. What happened? It was a woman, wasn't it, Dad? <laughs> I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was thinking of going to graduate school. I'd finished Spring Hill. I got my master's. 
planning to go to St. Louis U to get a, a master's degree in physics, and along comes the Korean War, and the Navy was looking for people. Mm-hmm. So Joe talked me into volunteering. <laughs> Way to go, Joe. I went to the because Navy. Because of you, my father doesn't have a Ph.D. I went to the Navy and uh, really liked it. Uh, How long between St. Louis and meeting Mom? What what happened between those years? Oh, goodness, I don't have to think about that. <laughs> I don't need her name. I don't need her name. Don't need her name. Well, jobs were, uh, with a physics degree, were easy to get at that time. So mm-hmm. I went to work for DuPont, which ran the Savannah River plant. And what was DuPont making? Bombs? Well, DuPont was is a chemical company, of course. Right. But what what kind of work were they doing in the nuclear world? Well, they were running the Savannah River plant, doing that for the government. Oh, I see. For one dollar a year, because they had that sounds fishy to me. Well, well, do it for a dollar a year. I swear that's all the compensation I want. They did something in World War One that gave them a bad reputation. Dupont did. Yes, I've forgotten what it was, but so they wanted to overcome that, so that's why they worked for a dollar a year to run. Google what they did in World War One. So, how long did you work for Dupont? Well, I think DuPont dropped the program and somebody else took care of it. Uh, another but you worked at Savannah River Plant for a few years. Yeah. Did you wait until you had achieved some level of financial stability before you got married? Was that in your mind? I had an uncle that was very good looking. When my grandfather died, he took over the business at age 21. The business immediately failed because he didn't know what he was doing. So it was kind of drummed in me that don't do what Uncle Yin did, you know. <laughs> Uncle Yin, he was the rapscallion. Yeah. So you wanted to be prepared when you got married. And you, were, you met mom, you had a good job. I remember one time I asked you, how does somebody prepare to have six children, which, you've, which you had? You had six kids. Oh, you just trust in the Lord. Right. And that was essentially the answer you gave me then and. I just yeah. was wondering if you had changed your mind. <laughs> the law has been good to me. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so, so you don't prepare. You just do it. You're a devout Catholic. You start forming a family. At what point, if ever, does do we have enough money to pay for all these mouths enter into the conversation? Or do you just go pick up shifts at O'Leary's Pub if, if, if uh, ends don't meet? I never, never thought about it. Never thought about it? No. Never occurred to you to think, do I have enough money to have another baby? No. <laughs> That's the most Catholic thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, that, <laughs> I mean, you know, the Lord's going to take care of you. That's all. You got to have the faith. Okay. So at it, 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 any point between 19, so you had your first child in 1961 or 1960, October 1960. Okay, well, number one, I'm from a frugal-minded family. Right. So all my life I've been saving and and investing in not the right investments maybe, Mm -hmm. but letting money accumulate if nothing in a savings account, which gives a a little interest. Right. So uh, I always had money in the bank. I never 
worried about money. Because you weren't out blowing it. You were a pretty conservative young man. You didn't get married till you were 32, but you weren't a playboy between 21 and 32. You weren't no. blowing it on no vacations, golf, gambling. Yeah, I, I was women. thinking I, I really didn't invest it as I should have. Right. But I, uh, I still had, you know, even a savings account, giving a few percent interest, it can... Uh, can build up over over several years. So you were a, a solvent young man. No wonder that your mother-in-law held you in such high esteem. I didn't know she did that. When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, so you start having kids. Now, between at any point between having your first child and having your sixth child, and, and that's probably, what, 12 or 13 pregnancies for six kids? At and least. Like a 50, at least that many pregnancies? Yeah, there were a few that didn't. Well, yeah, right. So, so you basically had like a fifty percent take rate. So, so I'm, I'm laughing. Sorry, brothers and sisters that didn't make it. I, I really, I, I'm not treating you as callously as as it may sound. At no point between the time you start having kids and the time all of them are fully fledged, independent adults, uh-huh. assuming we've gotten there. Yeah. So have we gotten there? <laughs> <laughs> at least financially speaking, forget about uh, nobody's Freud with me recently. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody, have any of my siblings hit you up for cash recently? Okay. So were there, were there times where you're just like, ah, this, I mean, how hot did the financial stress burn? Not at all. Raising that many kids. Not at all. Not at all. Your profession during this time. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a saver. Right. I've always saved. So always had money in the bank. Uh-huh. Uh, Never rich, but always a saver. Yeah, I mean, well, you're rich now because you don't spend any money, and you're 91, and you don't need to spend any money. I don't know. I'd have to ask you. You and Bubba, if you want to take it over, I don't know. <laughs> you're you're pretty rich, relatively speaking, relative to your needs, and that's a whole other thing. Yeah, right? yeah that's right. I mean, rich really is how much you have versus how much you need, and you don't need very much, and so you've got your needs covered. Well, for- don't have. You got to have your taste. To be in line with with your income, I mean, you need another wife to take to go shopping on your pensions. That's what you need. <laughs> You're a saver, so you never felt stress. You were out of work for during a period for like a year, weren't you? In like 1969, before I came along, weren't you looking for work for about a year? You owned two houses, yeah. one in Atlanta and one in Ohio. You had four kids and me on the way. The most important of all your children, and you weren't stressed at all during that time. I really didn't worry about it. I figured the wow. Lord, Lord take care of me. Wow. Well, not only that. Did you know, how'd mom feel about you putting it all in the Lord's hands? Well, I had parents that I could go to. I never did. I never wanted to. Right. But I did have, um, if things got really bad, I knew where I could, do, I could go. That's, that's the difference between being broke and being poor. I, in my in my opinion, because I've been broke, I've been broke as a young adult, and I always knew that if things got really bad, I could come home. That that's right. That 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 if I was willing to ask for that help, I knew it existed. That's and right. And you would have thought probably nothing of giving it. It would have hurt me to ask a lot more than it would have hurt you to give it. I think that's correct. <laughs> and so you you always knew that was there for you too. I felt it was, yes. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have existential stress over being missing a paycheck for a few months, even with four kids? 
Well, I've always been a saver and always had money in the bank. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I had a backup. Now, that money wasn't invested well, mm-hmm. but, but even getting a, a few percent is a lot better than nothing. And knowing you, it, it may have not been invested well, but it wasn't invested recklessly. Yeah, it was uh, very, very conservative. Right. So you didn't get tremendous returns, but you never lost $200,000 in chinchilla farm investments. No, I was not smart. (laughs) You didn't know about (laughs) the next generation. The chinchilla investment was that a reference to an episode of MASH? So you never really thought too much. You just sort of studied what you wanted to study, and then you started having kids without a master plan other than just, we'll get by, we're not, we're not going to waste money. Never spend everything you make. I mean, first of all, you don't expect to uh, live paycheck. I, I never live paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. I've always been a saver all my life, mm-hmm. so I always had money in the bank, so to speak. Not a lot. But it seemed a lot to me. Right. It, was, it was sufficient, you know. Well, relative to, again, relative to your consumption. And I always had my parents I could go to mm-hmm. if things really got bad. And I never had to. And I never wanted to. And I don't think they wanted me to. No, I, I don't think any parent wants you to, but they, they want you to know. They, they don't want you to freak out. What would you say is was your biggest extravagance in those days? Did you have anything that was, if you had an extra 50 bucks, that you didn't put in the bank, would you ever treat yourself to something? I think I had everything I needed. Uh, Which was like stale bread, water, and <laughs> adequate clothing. What is? How do you? What was everything you needed? Well, I mean, like like the basics of food and clothing. Uh, a car that starts. Yeah, you want a car, a, a workable, reliable car, mm-hmm. and uh, th- that's the um, important thing. Man. What was the first car that you bought that had power windows? Do you remember? I don't remember. <laughs> I think I can tell you. It was about 20 years after power windows became available. Why would you want power windows? Who wants to pay because, for that? Because if you're always riding shotgun, then your right bicep gets to be so much larger rolling up that window than your left bicep. And When did you first get cable television? Do you remember this? No, I don't. Yeah, when the Allinger family first got cable television. No, I, I can't imagine. In, in, the the year, in the year of our Lord, 1989. Was that the year? <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere around. The, I, I think mom talked you into it because at a certain point you realized that if you didn't have cable television, your children wouldn't come home to visit. And I passed up that up. You, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a good strategy you had. How many times in your life have you borrowed money? The only time I've borrowed money is for real estate, for a house. You've never borrowed money to buy a car? I've never borrowed money to buy a car. So if you knew you were going to need a new car? I'd have the money. And I'd buy a new car, not a used car. I'd buy a new car because I know what I was getting. When I bought a used car, I didn't know what the hell I was getting. And I would keep a car from new till it was junk. That I recall. That part I do remember. And, the 1967 uh, Plymouth Belvedere that you were driving in 1984? What was it, the Belvedere? The Belvedere was the three in the tree with the steel dashboard, custom designed to smash 12-year-old brains when you hit the brakes too fast. 
So you've never borrowed money to buy a car. No. You've never borrowed money to pay for a vacation. No. How do you feel about people who borrow money to go on vacation? I think they're sick. <laughs> Why would you borrow money to have a good time? How about I mean, to buy a mattress? Would you ever borrow money to buy a mattress? Yes, I wouldn't. You would? I can't conceive of being that broke. <laughs> that you would have to borrow money to buy a mattress? Yes. What did it represent to you to have money in the bank, even if it was Not in the $50? bank. I, I had it in my drawer. Oh, okay. I liked it in my drawer. What did you want that money for when you were 13 years old? Just let it accumulate. Let it accumulate? Yes. So you were a I saver? I wasn't smart enough to invest it even in a savings account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But my father set up savings accounts for all of his children, which was, I think, a good good thing. And a few times a year, he may drop a few dollars in them. Did you have an allowance? Not until I was uh, in my teens, I think. Do you remember what your allowance was, how much it was? I remember I was a freshman at Spring Hill. I was 17, mm-hmm. and I got $4 a week. What would you spend that on? Spend it? Why the hell spend it? <laughs> So this is... I mean, maybe they go to the movies, but for the most part, it just accumulated. Wow. You were a saver in college. Where did you fail that I didn't get this uh, sensibility? Clearly, I didn't inherit your genius. Well, I've gotten... I've earned my cheapness over time. I'll check with Stacy. Oh, she thinks I'm cheap. Believe me. Speaking of marriage, how did yours and mom's approach to money differ or coalesce? I think they coalesce fine. I mean... You were married for 55 years from 1959 until mom passed away in 2014. What's the most expensive jewelry you ever bought, mom? Does it start with tie and end with Mex? No, the most expensive thing I bought was a wedding ring. Right, okay. Oh, engagement ring. Her engagement ring. And that was about $700. Wow. Which was a lot more money then. Sure, of course. Mom was raised in a pretty frugal environment herself, at least from, yes. as she was she was raised by a yes. single mother who was a secretary, yes. and yeah. they eventually had a one-room apartment. And so this suave young naval officer with $50 in his checking account represented a home run. Who am I to say? <laughs> and so over time, did you and mom fight about money? I don't really think we fought about money. I mean, I think we were in general agreement that what you don't need, you you save and invest for the Right. I guess if you look back and you say, if if you had 50% more money coming in when you you were working, how would you have spent that money? Well, you probably would have saved it. I would have invested. (laughs) (laughs) And then what? And then what? Well, you you never know. You got education. People go to college and whatnot. As the family grows, uh, their expenses become uh, greater. Absolutely yeah. expensive. Yeah. yeah, so you you really want the money ahead of time and be ready for the... Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, then you need a new car, you need a car. Yeah, I'm raising kids in, a, in, a, in an environment of uh, plenty and affluence, and I, I still hear them wanting things that they don't need or that we can't afford. You have six kids. Surely at one point, one of my brothers and sisters, not me, but one of them must have said, hey, I want this thing. And you either couldn't afford it or you chose not to make it a budgeting priority. 
How did you go about doing that? I can't think of a of a case why that was. Well, what did you want? <laughs> well, there's a bunch. I get uh, an Atari 2600, uh, Mattel electronic football, basketball, baseball. What did you feel like you wanted to provide your children from a financial point of view? What, 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 okay, what I, were your obligations I, as a parent? Okay, I think they should uh, learn the value of a dollar. Mm-hmm. And the way you learn That's that. That's 94 cents, right? <laughs> yeah. The best thing is to go to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, uh, whether you're fr- throwing newspapers uh, or, or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you know how long it takes to accumulate for, for whatever you want, whether it's a bicycle or. Uh, right. To be able to make a connection between what they want and, uh, well, and yeah, how to the, the value it. of a dollar. Right. Okay. And what it, what did you feel like you needed to provide them? Clearly, you you and mom valued Catholic education, so you prioritized oh. paying private school tuition. But then there was also college. And Did you feel like your obligation to your kids was get them through college debt-free and then let them go and figure it out from there? Yes, I think that's, that, that's right. We say we don't do graduate school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recall. I, I remember. But... Uh, I'm, I'm apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out fine. I mean, uh, it motivated me. But you see these student loans today; these kids coming out with sixty thousand dollars worth of debt from college with a communications degree. That's not setting a kid up for success. Well, it says sixty thousand. In other words, they they're on that tab for sixty thousand. Well, that's what I'm saying. But you know, I think some. The ethos today is, yeah, well, college costs a lot of money and people are going to have to borrow, but these are degrees that aren't income producing even. It's one thing if you graduate with a degree in accounting that is monetizable. If you have $40,000 in debt, you can pay that back if you're making $100,000 a year for a few years. I would uh, like you to get out of college debt free. And I I think all of you did. Relatively speaking, at least from a tuition standpoint, I can't speak to what somebody's bar-based visa bills were, but you told me about the night before I went to, to college, you have four years, do with them what you will. I suggest you graduate. Those were your parting words to me. Well, I, uh, my thing is, this is, this, this is not going on indefinitely. Right. You're not but, on the seven-year plan. But we, uh, that could have been extended. I mean, uh, under oh, the- now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I could have squeezed six years of college out of you. No, you wouldn't have. I didn't think I would have. I mean, you would. Uh, I think uh, leaving home and going away to college. I mean, going away to college is a good way to leave home mm-hmm. because you 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 kind of do it gradually. Right. I mean. You have a place you can come back to. It's a four-year training facility for how to live on your own, sort of. Yeah. And if you can live at home and go to school, that's uh, that's to your advantage. You don't have those. Right. You have less debt, if you have any at all. My general thing is to avoid going into debt. Right. I think debt is just so expensive. It costs so much to pay it back. What do you think is an appropriate federal tax rate an appropriate federal tax rate right what should people pay in taxes is 50 percent too high is 25 percent too low well you know the general idea is pay as little as possible because as soon as the government 
knows they can get more out of you, they will. Mm-hmm. Or they'll work and try to. Right. It kind of depends on what you're going to get from it. If you're getting a good education, 25% may not be, be too high if they're going to pick up, if you're going to use the public education system. And right, that, right. And that's generally the best. I mean, was, or it can be, it can be very good, uh, quite adequate, you know. Mm-hmm. It may depend on where you live, what state you live in, and whatnot, what they have to offer. Right. But the biggest thing, as a young person, you're going to redeem right away is your education mm-hmm. or your help with your education. Mm-hmm. And the question is how much taxes should that Yeah, well, should taxes be, how progressive should the tax rate be? What should the tax rate be on somebody that makes $50,000 a year? And what should the tax rate be on someone who makes $300,000 a year? Okay, between 50 and 300, that's a fact of six. I uh, really don't see the person paying six times more taxes. But if they had even the same flat rate, the person would be paying six that, times more taxes. Yeah. And most places have, or certainly in the United States, we have a progressive tax system where he would be paying a higher percentage. A higher rate. percentage, yeah. So, I mean, so even with a flat tax rate, he'd be paying six times as much. On incremental income, should he be paying 50% more as a percentage of that incremental income? I don't think so. Steve Forbes would be glad to hear your answer. Steve Forbes would. (laughs) I guess my income has been on the low side, not really super high. What's the most I ever made? I don't know. It was always good. Never, You never got to rich territory until over years of spending less than you made you and the time value of money, lo and behold, you, you've turned into a uh, relatively wealthy fella. And I think that what I've done is avoid going into debt. Mm-hmm. I'd rather pay cash rather than uh, right. cash and be done with it. Right. When you do spend money, you recommend cash. In general, yes. Right. For something like an automobile, yeah. Is there any other advice you'd like to offer on how to live a good financial life? Uh, spend less than you make. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it comes down to that, spend less than you make, and invest the, the difference, mm-hmm. or at least put it in a savings account where it, it pretty much stays the same. And don't mess with it from there. Well, it's there if you need it. Right. I mean, it's, it's a backup. Don't go borrow. Use your own money. Mm-hmm. Don't. When you go to somebody else, they, they want service charges and, All you that know. nonsense, yeah. All right, Dad. Thank you for talking to me. You've set an, an amazing financial example, and I appreciate that. Amazing financial <laughs> I'm being 100% sincere when I say that. I think you're a financial hero. Just don't spend money you don't have. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, that's like, that's it's the, it that simple. It's the best advice and the least followed of all financial advice there is. People can't live within their means. It's a very challenging thing for people to do these days for so many reasons. What I uh, think is a difficulty when you're single, you make the decisions. Mm-hmm. If they're the wrong, you you suffer for it, whatnot. Right. But when you're married, well, first of all, the wife's got certain 
ideas. <laughs> uh-huh. And part of them may be your mother wasn't this way, but I can understand that certain people feel they have to put up a show mm-hmm. that they they look like they're rich. Right. They look like they can afford what they're spending. I didn't have that problem. Right. I mean, I, I'm lucky that way, but I can understand that they, that that could be a problem. Yeah. And the wife could be very unhappy when you want to save for tomorrow because, you know, this kid in the crib may want to go to college. You know? Yes. They, they want that eventually. Yeah, and you should be ready for it, not not wait till uh, they finish high school if they will and see how we're going to finance right. it. Right, yeah. Well, it shouldn't be finances. It should be paid out of you pocket. paid for cash, right? And then what you accumulate can, you know, if you get sitting in in some kind of uh, investment or whatnot, it, it should grow. Right, yeah. Okay, thank you, Dad. You're welcome, and uh, where will this be printed? <laughs> so that is the wisdom of William Henderson, Billy Ollinger, proud son of Mobile, Alabama, and proud graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy. It just makes me happy listening to his wisdom and just the brilliant simplicity of it all. You know, it's like, don't overcomplicate your life with stuff. He's the most Buddhist Catholic you'll ever want to meet, not on purpose, just because he has controlled his desires down to all he wants to do is live a good life and be an honorable man. And I think he's hit it out of the park in that regard. Before we leave, I just want to say thank you so much again for listening. If you have the chance, please share with a friend, subscribe to the podcast, write us a nice review on whichever platform you're listening to this thing. We really care about it. I say we, that's me and my buddy, producer, editor, Mike Carano, the famous Mike Carano. As we leave, I want to leave you with the parting thoughts of my siblings, each of whom shared some thoughts about what dad taught them about money. Hope you enjoy it. See you next week. This is my sister, Kathy. She is the oldest in the clan. Kathy, what did dad teach you about money? First of all, savings. He was the original direct deposit. We didn't have it back then, but somehow he knew uh, when I was paid and conveniently (laughs) asked me and offered to deposit my check and how much did I need for the week? You know, maybe $5 for a movie. And uh, he would get that deposited right away. He encouraged work. Many times he picked us up and dropped us off uh, before we could drive. I remember he always spent cash for everything, for cars. Although at one point, he's he's not such a miser. He did tell mom, you know, you don't want to buy junk. If you have to spend your money, you want good quality. That was important to him. Or if a car is breaking down all the time, it might be cheaper in the long run to look at a new one. So it's important how you save the money that you earn and always to live near public transportation in case you have car trouble. This is my older brother, Cole. The best thing my dad ever taught me about money was how important it is to save it. It's a basic lesson, maybe the best lesson. I don't always seem to have learned it, even many years on. But of course, I embrace it as much as I can. And really happy that dad is able to enjoy later in life so many of the fruits of his most excellent labors. What a man, not just money-wise, but teaching us the teaching us values, not just the values of value of money. This is older brother 
Bill, a.k.a. Bubba? Well, the one thing that I learned that I've passed on to my kids, or I should say one of the things I've learned, is that when Dad talked about college, he said, uh, I, you have four years. Do with it what you will. I suggest you graduate. So <laughs> I, I would assume one of the other siblings came up with that, too. In the interview with dad, I actually say that. So clearly he's recycling advice from one older sibling to the younger ones. I wonder where he got it. That would be a good question because you do need to ask him about that. Uh, and then the other thing that he told me was just watch your expenses because, you know, your income is your income and you can work on it making that change. But if you just take care of the expenses and live within your means, Currently, you'll always be okay. This is my sister, Trisha. Do you have any questions before we begin? I hate this. No. Trisha, what did dad teach you about money? Um, I guess the way I look at it, he taught me two things, meaning it's, it was his words and his actions is what I learned the most. He said, save your money, don't pay interest, that kind of stuff. It started very young. So he taught us that all birthday checks had to go into the college fund. We had to get a job when we were 16. All those checks went into the college fund. He also showed us how to sacrifice to save money, meaning he rode the bus every day to work to downtown Atlanta so we could use his car to get to school or to get to our sports, what have you. When I went away to college, we opened up a checking account. When I did that, he helped create the debit card pin for me, and it required four digits. He created work. He thought it was the funniest thing, W-O-R-K. So, yeah, he definitely enjoyed teaching us, but he did it through his own actions. So that's what I would say typifies dad and how he taught us how to approach money. This is my little sister, Claire. Claire, what did dad teach you about money? Well, dad taught me to be very careful with money and to respect money and that I didn't need anything. He often said we didn't need anything. That really helped me a lot, especially in a few years where I had very little because I never spent money I didn't have. I was so conservative when I had very little money that I didn't spend anything. No movies, no dinners out, nothing. And that got me through very lean times. But then when the lean times are over, you have to allow yourself and your children to spend money on normal things like movies and clothes and dinners and things like that. We didn't need anything. That's what he said over and over again. We didn't need it. Being a single mom, I had money left over and bought my house, you know, without their help. And it was only because everyone else is out of money all the time. Everybody around me. And I'm like, I make less than everybody else. How is it that I have more money? And it's because I refuse to spend it, which then later you find out like you have to spend money or you're not a normal person anymore. (laughs) So anyway, what did everybody else say? 